Good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you today. Good crowd this morning. It's good to uh, enjoy this nice, crisp fall morning. You know, many times we don't realize how busy Life Fellowship is throughout the week. And one of my areas, of, by the way, my name is Dan, I'm one of the teaching pastors, but uh, another one of my responsibilities is missions, and we try to keep that in front of you as much as possible, but, you know, it's just almost impossible to let you know everything that's going on. I was, you know, thinking this week, first of all, I've been out in Colorado last week with one of our missionaries who grew up in this church. I was with Sam and Laura Hatfield, and they work with... Uh, uh, a ministry called Timberline Lodge. It's one of the torchbearer sites. Torchbearers is a gap year program for kids that are between the ages of about 19 and 25, and they go away for a year and they study the Bible intensely, getting ready for that next phase of their life, whether they're going off to college, going to the workplace, going in the military. And so uh, I actually got to do this last year and did it again this year. So it's a week of intensive teaching. There were 41 students from around the world. We had students from the United States, Canada, Germany, New Zealand. Uh, it, was, it was really exciting to be with them. And uh, this year I taught worldview and uh, how to think critically uh, in light of everything that's going on. But, you know, I was out there with Sam and Laura, and they're expecting their third little baby. They used to, or Sam used to be in this church as a young teenager, a youngster, in fact. And uh, now he's serving the Lord full time. Every month, we are the largest supporter for the Hatfield family out there. And because you give, we're able to support them and work at educating young people from around the world. It's an exciting thing to be a part of. And then one day, I uh, went back to my room and uh, clicked on uh, AOL Messenger, not AOL Messenger, how old am I? Uh, Facebook Messenger. Don't laugh at me. I do have an AOL account, and I will die with that thing. And there's a guy in this, this church, by the way, who has a prodigy account. How old do you have to be to have? I mean, that's like CompuServe. So some of you, some of you are looking at me like, what, what? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, uh, but no, uh, uh, I jumped on my uh, Facebook uh, video messenger and uh, talked to uh, Shepard Gover, who is uh, a missionary that we support in Zimbabwe. And we have just been launching into a project with them where we're, we're starting Bible schools, discipleship schools that last for six months all across Zimbabwe, a country that's in, in amazing turmoil at times, people starving to death. It used to be the breadbasket of Africa. But the cool thing is we are sending this month 100 pastors from, from there down to South Africa for some training on discipleship. And now I'm in the process of raising the money for 2,500 textbooks. So by the first of the year, we'll have 2,500 Zimbabweans who are going to be weekly meeting uh, to, to be able to learn the word of God and to, and to uh, get started on their Christian journey. Uh, and so uh, our missions committee released uh, about $3,000 to get the training done. And now I've got about $7,500 I've been raising kind of behind the scenes. Somebody in this church this week gave $5,000. So we've got $2,500 more to go to be able to get these, these Bible schools started. All we need, textbook, three bucks. And I, I, I need about $700 or 700 more textbooks purchased uh, to be able to complete this project. And, and because you're giving... We're doing that. And I could just go on and on and on. But I, I want you to know that whether we're doing Bible studies here on Tuesday night or Wednesday nights or men's studies on, on Saturday morning and Thursday night with Husbands University and the ladies' Bible studies that meet here this week, things we got going on tonight with student ministry, the small groups that meet all across our community, things happening in kid life, outreaches going on, boxes being filled for Operation Christmas Child, all these things, this is the heart of our church finding somebody near to us who's far from God and introducing them to the glorious gospel of Christ. And so I hope that you'll be praying. I hope that you'll be giving. But most of all, I hope you'll be doing. 
doing the work of the ministry throughout this week. You know, as we look at Daniel chapter 8 here, and as we look at this, what what is a complex chapter that has a, a lot of mystery in it, I want you to know that while the Bible does have mysterious things in it, it is also very clear about what we're to be doing and what is going on in God's grand scheme of things. And as we look at this passage here this morning, I want you to remember this. No matter what is going on in the world around you, no matter what personal trial you may be facing, no no matter what is happening in Washington, D.C., or in Ukraine, or in Taiwan, in China, God has it under control. God has it under control. And we need to remember this. You know, as I was preparing for this lesson, first of all, I really squabbled at at, at, uh, um, Ben as we were dividing up, you know, whose chapters and what. And, and, And this was like the chapter, I'm like, I don't want that one, I don't want that one, and boom, I get it, all right? So, because I'm looking at it, no, what in the world am I supposed to say practically about thriving Babylon when we're talking about a goat and, and, and a ram and horns out of the middle of the head and four horns growing up? And yeah, that's got a lot of deep spiritual messages for us. On top of that, I knew this was the Sunday after election Sunday. All right. So I knew, first of all, I don't have the gift of prophecy. I had no clue how it was going to turn out on Tuesday. But I, I, I had a sneaking suspicion that a lot of people were going to be really excited or a lot of people were going to be really depressed because that's just kind of where we are in our country today. And lo and behold, everybody's depressed now, okay? <laughs> because if there was ever an election that did not provide clarity, last Tuesday did not provide clarity. It was like, more the same, please. And, uh, and, and so we got, we've got divided government, we've got confusion, we've got, we've got all kinds of things, you know, a cloudy future. And, and there was no singular voice that was set, speaking loudly above all of them uh, on, on Tuesday. And I know some of you couldn't care less. I know some of you were, were you, you know, you were up uh, Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon and uh, preparing your Super Bowl style spread where you had popcorn and wings and all of your TVs because you were waiting for the election results to come in. But whether, whether you liked it or didn't like it, whether it was something you were looking forward to or something you were dreading, again, I say to you this, on the authority of the word of God, God has it under control. But let's look at just a little bit of Daniel chapter 8 this morning and some lessons I think we can learn from it. And we read a portion of it. I hope this week in preparation for today you took some time to read the entire chapter. But when you read prophetic passages, they are a little disconcerting. They are a little confusing. The imagery is, at times, let's be honest, bizarre. But as God is unfolding exactly what we need to know, he doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't give us crystal clarity. And he does that for his purpose. But if you were to take the context of this chapter and look at it and try to imagine what it would be like for us today or something along the lines of our own nation, Can you imagine if maybe 700 years ago, the king of England woke up and said, man, did I have a bizarre dream last night? He said, I saw myself as a king sitting on a throne. And then all of a sudden I saw a great nation come up out of the ocean, 
a landmass that no one knew even existed. And from that landmass gathered people from all lands and all nations and all manner of beasts and people gathered on this land. And out of that land grew many beasts, but two beasts were above them all. The donkey and the elephant rose high. And I saw on a hill in a great white tree an eagle formed with 50 wings. And lo, I say to you, across the valley from the tree that was white with the eagle with 50 wings rose a hill, and on that hill gathered 535 beasts from all the land. And some were donkeys and some were elephants, and every two years some disappeared, and new ones came, and every four years even more disappeared, and more came. And lo and behold, across from the valley, where the great hill that had 535 beasts on it, rose another creature, and that creature had nine heads and was very wise. And these three ruled the land. You know, okay, that sounds kind of bizarre, right? A little weird. And yet I think most of us can kind of figure out what I might have been saying, though I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. You can see the imagery, and maybe it makes sense to us now. Well, this is the case in this passage. When you read the whole of this passage, many Bible scholars believe that the imagery that's being depicted here is descriptive of the terror that would be inflicted by the empires of the Persians and the Greeks, particularly Alexander the Great, on what was now Darius's kingdom and the land of Nebuchadnezzar, the land of Daniel, the land of the great Medo-Persian Empire. It's interesting to note that these beasts that are described here are very similar to ones that were in a Hellenistic age astrological sign, and the two beasts that we see described here would have been representative of constellations that existed over Persia and Syria, which would have a lot of connection to, to what this was going on. Many Bible scholars believe that Daniel's cha Daniel chapters 7 through 12 were written primarily by God to the Jews so that they would have something to cling to because God is about to go silent for about 400 years. And there's going to be a lot of turmoil for Israel during that time. And 400 years of not hearing from God when they had been regularly hearing from him would have caused great fear and alarm and confusion to his people. And so perhaps God was giving them, giving them this vision to let them know that he was still there and still in charge, even if they weren't hearing from him. They could look back at these passages and, and, and that the horrific and crazy things that they were experiencing or had experienced had been prophesied previously, and as such, they were part of God's plan. And in other words, God still works even when he's silent. He's still there even when we don't hear from him when we want to hear from him. But I think of all of these verses and the imagery of the goat and the, and, and, and the ram and the horns and the breaking of a horn and the reemergence of four horns, but they're not all the same. All, all of that, the verse that means the most to me is the last verse in chapter 8. Because here Daniel gets 
to hear the vision. He tries to comprehend and explain the vision. But in the end, here's what the scripture tells us about Daniel. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. But then I rose and I went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And I want you to understand something that I believe that was true for Daniel and should be true for us today as we live out our lives in a Babylonian world that sometimes doesn't make sense. That at times things seem to be spiraling out of control. At a time when opposition seems to be arising and comfort and success And peace as we've known it seems to be evaporating before our very eyes. And we stand appalled, confused, disoriented, maybe even a little sick. And we don't understand what's going on. I want you to know something. In the midst of all of that, and Daniel modeled it, we can have hope. In the fact that God is in charge, and we must remember that we have a job to do, and we need to be doing it. So I want us to look at some principles that I think we can pull from this passage very quickly this morning. And we kind of see two things. We see our problems, our response, our reactions to Babylon to a system that is growing increasingly hostile to the values and that, that, that we're placing our entire future upon, the foundation to which we are moored and anchored. And then I want you to see on the other side, God's plan, God's heart, God's solution that will give us direction and guidance in the midst of the confusion we might feel. So here's the first one. Our problem is this. We think everything is about us. And God wants us to remember this. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. We think it's all about us, but in the end, it's always all about Him. You know, whether it is geopolitical issues, like the ones described in Daniel 8, or if we look today, and i got to tell you, on this day that is or this weekend on which we have remembered on Friday our veterans, and, 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 and we do honor them, and I'm glad Jason said what he said this morning, and, and I do hope you'll join us if you're an active duty or a, a veteran um, from, you know, from past service, that you'll join us for our, our time of appreciation and fellowship with you. We worked hard this week just to be able to say thanks, and I hope you'll just stop by for a few moments and let, let us be a blessing to you and say thank you personally. And, and while we think of all that we've been through, we also look at all that we could potentially go through. And if you watch the news at all, you know that these are tenuous times at best. You've got North Korea with nuclear capabilities emerging and lobbing missiles haphazardly across the eastern part of the world. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got, an, you, you, you've got um, uh, Iran who we all know what they're up to and we seem unwilling or incapable of addressing the fact that two of the great tyrannies of the world may soon have nuclear weapons with the capability of striking the major political areas. But if that wasn't, uh, that wasn't enough, you got 
Putin over there who's haphazardly, you know, taking over nations and, and flexing his muscle and, 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 and making kind of a fool of what we thought was one of the great armies of the world. But he's always got that trump card, no pun intended, in his card, in his pocket that, that, that says, you know, I do have nuclear weapons and I'm crazy enough to use them. Oh, and then by the way, if that's not enough, we've got Emperor for Life, Mr. Z, over in, in China, who's now decided that, well, if Putin can take Ukraine, then I can take Taiwan. And i got to tell you, I watch all this stuff. You say, why do you watch it? Because i got a 25-year-old in the United States Marines right now that's got another 10 months to serve, and I'm counting down the months. It's a scary world. But by the way, it was a scary world in those days as well. But here's the thing to remember. Yeah, I got a 25-year-old son in the Marines. Some of you got folks in the military. You got family you love. We, you know, n- none, of us, none of us want to hear that sound that, you know, that comes on the TV. If you're old enough to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and all that time where literally those, my, my friends and family who lived in South Florida were seeing tanks and, and, and convoys going up and down the east coast of this country during those days when, when nuclear war seems to be right around the corner or when conflict seems very, very capable of happening, it becomes a whole new level of reality. That's unnerving. But it's not about us. There is a greater war that's being waged in the universe that began when Satan himself said, I will sit on the throne of the Most High. I will be God. I will receive glory. And that conflict which began there and when, during which one-third of the created angels were cast out of heaven who remained loyal to a satanic vision of rebellion... That still plays out. There has been no armistice signed for that conflict. And it wages in the universe today. Whether we want to admit it, whether we're in denial, whether we think it's a fantasy, truth is truth regardless of whether anybody at all believes it. And the Bible tells us that we are at war, that Satan is at war with God. So we ought not be surprised when we get caught up in the skirmishes, and in the full-fledged battles. Now, we think everything's about us, but it isn't. It is about the God of the universe, the creator of all, who has been attacked in rebellion. And we need to be reminded that we are not the main characters in this story of God's universe and creation. Another problem is we care too much about earthly leadership, and local government authority. And God's solution is this, and he says it without apology. I am sovereign, and the mightiest king that has ever sat on a throne on this planet is simply a pawn in his narrative. A pawn, a bit player. Small time in comparison to his sovereign authority over the world that he created. When we remember this, it ought to drive some peace and some order into the confusion that we may feel. That even Daniel felt this disoriented, appalling sense of, holy cow, the world is out of control. That we can pause and say, no, you know what? Doesn't matter who's in the White House. 
doesn't matter who's the head of the Chinese or the Russians or who's in the top of the chain at the United Nations. It doesn't even matter who's mayor of Huntersville or Cornelius or Mooresville or Davidson. It doesn't matter. God is sovereign. And they're just bit players. Temporary pawns on this universal chessboard that exists at God's will. Kings and kingdoms rise and fall in the great arc of history, but God is always where he's always been and always will be. And if God is sovereign, if this is true across the globe and across the millennia, then it's true right down to our homes and within our lifetimes. We are here because of God's will. We move, we live, we die. We live our lives because of God's will. And it's important that we see ourselves in that way. Otherwise, it will create confusion and frustration and bitterness and fear that is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. There is a security that comes with believing that God is in charge. One that will allow us to enjoy the best of times and will also allow us to navigate the worst of times with a quiet confidence because we know the Grand Master has it all under control. Number three, we think that we have great power and the ability to impose our will on history. In fact, many people, that's what we live for. I want to be remembered. I want to leave my mark on history. I want people to remember me after I die. I want to make a difference. I want to be significant. And God has created a desire in many of our hearts to move forward, to lead. I'm not saying that that is unbiblical, but I'm saying this, we have to keep it in perspective. And God's solution to our self-centeredness about who we are and why we're here is this. God marks the exact days of our tenure ahead of time. God marks the exact days of our tenure ahead of time. You know, it's very interesting, and, and I enjoy watching the uh, inaugural ceremonies and, the, you know, the big thing on, on the, the mall and the Capitol and, you know, the, the pomp and circumstance that goes with all that and the raising of the hand and, and the other hand on the Bible and the Supreme Court justice and the transfer of power and all the things that go with that and, and so forth. But can anybody here, unless you actually teach history, tell me the names of all the presidents we've ever had? I think I could, and and I have a degree in history, I think I could get about mm, probably 35 to 40 of them. If I really thought about it, I might be able to get 95%, maybe, I don't know, maybe 90, maybe 80. Do you remember who the senators were in the state in which you were born, the year you were born? I don't. (laughs) I can't even give you the name of the senators of both the, both the senators that were in the state from where I was born or the state in which I lived 20 years. I think I can do it here right now, but next election I'll probably forget one or the other here, and one of them's from Cornelius. No, you know what? Leaders rise and they fall and we forget them, but nobody forgets who God is. 
The fact is, God marks the days of every senator and every congressman and every school board member and every water management district member, no matter what authority there is. By the way, God also marks the days of you as mom and dad and pastor and elder. Whatever leadership you may have, it's a tiny tenure. It's assigned to you by God. But there's only one whose authority lasts forever. The greatest despots in all the world are no longer feared the moment their heart beats its last time. So we need to remember this. We may think we have great power. We may think that our life matters in terms of history. And no doubt we do remember people from history like David and Solomon and even the tyrannical despots of history. We remember them, and they've left marks and scars, but there is none like God because he's permanent. Number four, we assume that everything is subject to our control and influence. We assume we can fix it. We assume we can make it better. We assume we can change it. But the bottom line is this. God orders the direction and destiny of both nations and individuals. There's been many a king over the course of human history who expected to die on a throne and instead died at a chopping block or on a gallows. There have been many people who thought that they could become the richest person in the world or that they could live lives of comfort and ease and yet one day found themselves in a bankruptcy court having lost it all. I was reading this week about several who were in the cryptocurrency industry. If you've been keeping your eye on that, you know that many of those young billionaires today are one step away from sleeping in their cars. Well, why is that? Because we assume that we're in control of our own destinies. We assume that things will work out the way that we will them to be. We assume that we have control. And yet, if God is sovereign, and we are not, Make no mistake that at any time he wills it, desires it, needs it, or whatever. God doesn't really have any needs, but you know what I'm saying. God orders the direction and destiny of nations, but also of individuals. So to put it really bluntly, is we ain't nearly as powerful as we think we is. We're just not. We're just not. But that doesn't have to cause us alarm. We don't have to be appalled. We don't have to get sick. We don't have to crawl into a cave and shake and shudder because we know the one who is in charge is our heavenly father who knows when a sparrow drops from the sky. He knows when a hair falls from my head. He's clothed the flowers of the field in immaculate, beautiful, incredible splendor. And if he then can handle that level of detail, he cares about you. And he sees things going on around you and in you and in your future that none of us yet see. But because we know who he is and we know his character and his nature, we can rest. And we can get up and we can get busy doing the things that God has assigned for us to do. Number five, we feel entitled to live lives of ease and comfort. We feel... Like, really, the universe revolves around our happiness, our desires, our need to feel significant. And yet, sometimes, 
God allows trials and persecution for his sake, for his glory, and for his purpose. I want to focus on this. I want you to listen carefully. You know, we kind of make derisive comments, derisive comments about this whole concept of being entitled. Well, that's a woke concept. But you know, it's also true. Many of us really do feel entitled. And it may not be because you're uh, an American or of a certain race or gender or educational status or socioeconomic level. But I think a lot of us think we're pretty special. And because we're special, we should be living lives of ease and comfort. And you know, in terms of getting blessings, we are incredibly blessed throughout history and even among those who are living today. Those of us who have had the privilege of traveling the world, you know exactly what I'm saying. And every time I come back from traveling the world, when I hit American soil, I not only feel special, I feel grateful. I feel grateful for a system that allows us to be able to work hard and be rewarded for that so that even the poorest in this country are wealthier than 90% of the people in third world countries. I'm thankful for little things like electricity that works 24 hours a day, like the ability to own not one car but two cars, for silly little things like ice cubes and toilet paper. But do you realize that there are many people on this planet who do not enjoy even the simplest pleasures that, and, and privileges and niceties that we take for granted? It is a wonderful thing, this time in which we live. Most of us have lived the majority of our life in relatively peaceful conditions. The wars we have fought have not been here, they've been there. They've not bombed our cities. They've not burned down our towns and villages. They've not disrupted our lives. We have gone to rescue others and to prevent them from getting here, but we've lived a life that's been pretty nice. And yeah, we often live in fear that they could come here, but none of us knows what that feels like the way they do in the Ukraine this morning or in northern Ethiopia or in Myanmar. We don't know that terror that comes with a thump in the night the way they do. And as a result, I think sometimes we're a bit spoiled we think we're a little special. And sometimes we wrap it around a pseudo form of Christian identity where, well, God has blessed our nation because we were founded with biblical values and visions and dreams of Christianity. I think we've long since abandoned that, but I think if we're honest, there is been no other country, no other historical period that has had the level of freedom and the ease of worship and the comfort of life that this nation has had over the last three centuries. But throughout man's history, evil has tortured the godly. It has hated those who are pursuing a relationship with their creator. They've caused unspeakable pain and 
heartache for millions, perhaps even billions over the arc of human history. And in much of the world, that is still the case today. We truly in this nation, and truly even in this community, live in a bubble of wealth and comfort. But remember this, bubbles never last forever. And we need to prepare ourselves. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not trying to be, you know, one, one, one of these people that, you know, likes to rain on everybody's parade. But I want you to understand this. If we understand history, if we understand God's word, if we understand the warnings of Christ when he said that we are going to be hated and have all manner of evil spoken against us, and some would even raise up swords and do us harm, if we relieve these words, if we understand the history of Christianity, and if we acknowledge the great war of the universe between between God and evil, then we ought to brace ourselves. We ought to take measure of where we're at in Babylon today. We need to ask the question of the Old Testament. When the prophet said to the nation of Israel, if footmen tire you, what will horses do? If we will get discouraged over an election, what are we going to do when the evil really are in power? If we get annoyed when someone teases us because of our position or because we get called into HR because we won't adapt to the DEI initiative or whenever our neighborhood has a problem with the Bible study cars parking in our streets for a few hours, if those kind of things are irritations and signs of persecution as we view it, what will we do when we are asked to stand for our faith at the level of the martyrs of history have done? We ought to ask ourselves those questions. You say, will this happen in your lifetime? I'm not anticipating it, but I know that many have awakened at some point. Shocked at how quickly things can change. Is that something you desire, Dan? Absolutely not. I don't want to be a martyr. You know? And the fact of the matter, matter is, I question the notion that many Americans say, I would be willing to die for my faith. And the reason I question that is because so many are not willing to live their faith when there is no opposition. Don't tell me what you'll do at death. Tell me what you do with your life. And then you know sometimes God uses persecution, uses opposition, so that we can know who the sheep and who the goats are. To separate the genuine from the dross. God's people should expect to go through seasons of trial and abuse and difficulty. It's arrogant for us to think that somehow we're so special that we should never deserve persecution in a broken creation that is absolutely bent on rebellion and violence. We are not citizens. We are aliens. This is not our permanent position. This is our temporary residence. And if that is true, entitlement ought to not be part of who we are and what we think. Number six, and finally, we live in fear of tyrants and abusive leadership. But God's response is everyone who yields authority at any level will continue, will eventually give account to God himself for how it is used. Yeah, you know, 
we do live in fear of people who have authority. We do in our country want to make sure that they don't get too much authority, too much power, too much permanence. It's written into the very fabric of our founding documents. Limited government, limited authority, limited power. I get it. We understand it. But the reality is this. Everyone, moms and dads, business owners and pastors, elected officials and appointed ones, we all will give account to God for the authority that we have and how we used it, whether we did it for his glory or for ours, whether we did it for his permanence and preeminence or for ours. And that's a sobering thought. And it comes with it a weight of responsibility that says the privileges I do have, the privileges that were assigned to me by God, the responsibilities that are part of what God put me on earth to fulfill need to be done with him in mind. And when that has happened, we can thrive in Babylon. We can enjoy this life. So how do we thrive under oppressive circumstances? Well, I think we have some examples from Scripture that are very clear. Number one, we have to live in faithfulness moment by moment and day by day. And so I would say to you, church, when we leave here today, whether you're happy about last week's elections or sad about last week's elections or just generally confused as I am, It really doesn't matter because today I have an opportunity to live out Christ. I'm going to engage and interact with people who do not know the Lord. You will sit by somebody at a restaurant this afternoon or be served by someone at some point today in a place of business that has never considered the eternity that awaits them. Your neighbor, your family member, your teacher at school, your student at school, the person that you did not ever dream that you would meet today, that God will divinely orchestrate a crossing of your paths with, and that represents an opportunity to be Jesus, to share the gospel, to show them another way. Those moments exist today, at this time. And when we live in faithfulness moment by moment and day by day, we're doing what God has assigned for us at this time in human history. Number two, we got to recognize that we live in a broken world. And we ought not be surprised or shocked or even, quite frankly, depressed by the conditions this creates. Don't be surprised the world's broken. Don't be decided. Be... When we live with a realistic view of evil and darkness and satanic oppression, when we live in a world that is is focused on the future that we see promised to us in the word of God, we're surprised by less and we are hopeful for what God is going to do in the end more. There are some things that did come out of the election on Tuesday I don't understand. I do not understand how the people of Montana voted that it is illegal and unnecessary for a doctor, not illegal, but unnecessary for a doctor to step in when a child who was supposed to be aborted is born alive and could survive the horrific experience that he's already been through and allow that baby to die on a cold table without human comfort or intervention. And yet a majority of the people of Montana, a place that has a Republican Senator, Republican senators, Republican representative, Republican houses of Congress, and that's who we thought was pro-life, right? They elect those officials, but they said, let the babies die without medical intervention. I don't understand that. And quite frankly, it infuriates me. How anybody can look in the face of an innocent child 
and say they're not worthy of life. I don't understand. You say, well, you're getting political. No, I'm getting biblical. Life begins with God, and it is not ours to take. Not by abortion, not by euthanasia, not by murder, not by suicide. It is His. It's sacred. And as long as there's life, there is hope and promise and potential before God. And whereas God is the author of life, Satan is the author of death. And we serve a God of life. And it's frustrating. But the bottom line is this. We should not be surprised when people who walk apart from God behave like people who walk apart from God. Not shocking. You know what is more shocking? When people who claim to be followers of Christ behave like people who do not know God. That ought to be shocking to us. It ought to be shocking for us in our own lives. And quite frankly, it's shocking for Dan Burrell. How many times during the course of a day, my actions, my attitudes, my words, my behavior, my private thoughts contradict the Word of God? But that's the nature of evil, isn't it? Evil forces evil upon us. So recognize this. We live in a broken world, and the only hope we have is the power of God in our lives and the truth of the Word of God as we live it. Number three, we have to remember that the story of God's restoration, and this is so important, the story of God's restoration for His creation has not yet, that's a big word for the believer, yet been completed. So therefore, hang on. Hang on. The story is not complete. It is not over. I cannot tell you how many times I've had conversations with skeptics, cynics, agnostics, and atheists who use a line similar to this. If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, if God is indeed sovereign as you've described him, if he's all-good, if he's perfect, if he's not willing that any should perish, explain to me, and then it'll be something like this, why babies get cancer, why my mother got killed in a car wreck when I was six. Why my house burned down last year. Why there are poor people and sick people and horrible people on this planet. If God is, why? And the answer to that question is found in the word yet. And the reality is the reason why God has not stopped it yet is because he's merciful. Because the moment he stops it, there will be no hope for redemption. There will be no conclusion to the consequences of our rebellion against him. And there will be no hope for the future for those who are apart from him. The fact that there still is evil in the earth is actually a sign of God's forbearance and patience with us. He is not willing that anybody, so he's saying, I'm going to hold back, hold back, come on, come on, come to repentance, hurry, hurry. The door's closing, it's ending, and we walk around like we have all the time in the world, comfortable in the mud of our sin and rebellion, and God is still reaching out, trying to pull us to safety, because he knows there's coming a day when there'll be no second chances, no additional hope. And when the yet is over, yeah, there'll be no sickness, no death, no tears will be present. They'll be wiped away. There'll be no end to eternity. And there'll be no sin in the present. But there'll also be no chance for redemption. So that's why today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to respond. 
brings me to number four. We have to believe in the hope that is Jesus Christ and the authority of the Father to complete what he has promised he will do. God loves you. God will redeem you. God will shelter you like the mother hen who shelters the little chicks beneath her wings. God loves you. He died for you. God loves you. He's preparing a place for you. God loves you. He wants to be forever with you. But you're going to have to respond with hope and faith and repentance to his glorious invitation to become one of his. And then he'll complete what he has promised he will do in your life and in this creation. And then finally, we must fulfill our role as disciples and ambassadors as we follow Christ and we represent truth to orders to others. We're going to have to fulfill our role as disciples and ambassadors. And I understand discouragement comes. Remember what happened to Elijah after he saw the fire fall? I mean, the fire fell. He had a great victory over the forces of evil. And then the next thing you know, Jezebel saying, I want that guy's head. Get it for me. Killing him. And Elijah, after that great moment of victory, went into a funk, a depression that left him hiding in a cave, whining to God, I, only I, still remain faithful to you, Lord. God's response to him was to give him a little time, to give him a little rest, to give him some bread and some water to be able to drink and restore himself. Take a nap, Elijah. I'll have an angel sitting out here watching, making sure you're okay. But eventually God said, now get up. It's not just you. There are thousands who have not yet bowed. And I'm not finished with you yet. I still have a task for you to perform. And so we know Daniel was sick. He was confused. He probably took a nap. He probably got restored. But then what did he do? He got up and got back at it. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're discouraged about the condition of our country, if you got a bad report from the doctor this week, if it seems like your world's falling apart, if you thought the election was the biggest disappointment you've had for the last two years, hang on for the next two years, but if you thought that was the biggest disappointment you could ever experience, I have news for you, okay? Lick your wounds, get a little something in your belly, take a good nap, and then let's get at it again. There are still those who have not turned their, knee, their knees toward Baal. There are still those that will respond to the gospel. The truth still needs to be preached. If you are the last person on the planet, may the last person on the planet who believes in the truth go out declaring the truth as he dies. But the truth needs to be preached. That's how you thrive in Babylon. You don't thrive in Babylon by fitting in. You don't thrive in Babylon becoming part of the system. You don't thrive in Babylon by being members of the temporarily winning party. You don't thrive in Babylon by hiding. You don't thrive in Babylon by by, by withdrawing your light and your message. You thrive in Babylon by stepping up like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all of the martyrs of the ages and the apostles as they went to the executioner's spot. And you stand up and say, I serve the King of Kings, and I die with his name on my lips. That's how you thrive in Babylon. This victory for Satan has been a temporary one. The issues that we face in this globe are the consequences of rebellion and sin. But the hope we have is not obscure. It is not hidden in the words 
of prophecy that is confusing. It is clear. And Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No ambiguity in that, is there? You don't have to be confused. All we have to be is obedient. So let's thrive. Today, this week, and every day we have breath in our lungs. Let's thrive in this Babylon. Let's show people there is a hope that's worth living for and dying for.